G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. As we continue to read Revelation 13, we're introduced to another beast beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. Now, when we see the word lamb, it's usually associated with Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then we're told that it spoke like a dragon. So it looks Christian or religious, but in all reality, it comes from Satan himself. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hello, my name is Bill, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. In this series, Pastor Jeff is looking at passages from Revelation 13. In today's message, we're talking about the mark of the beast. As we listen, Pastor Jeff says to think about what was happening in John's day when this was written. We need to stop trying to apply this passage directly to our culture and think about what John would have seen and thought. Let's jump into this message with Pastor Jeff. I'm in Revelation chapter 13 as we continue our series. A few weeks ago, a lady came up to me and she had a very serious look on her face. And she said, Pastor Jeff, if you have a moment, I've just got a question that really concerns me. And she said, I I was just wondering, this vaccine, uh, is it the mark of the beast? And at first I thought, wait a minute, are are you kidding me? Seriously, you know that you're not going to go to heaven someday and Jesus is going to come and meet you. And he's going to say, look, you did so well, you know, salvation by grace through faith. You were doing so well. I was the savior and Lord of your life. And then you got the vaccine. So I'm sorry, you can't come to heaven. You got to go to the other place. So that was my first thought. But then I realized the way we have sensationalized the book of Revelation, I can understand how she might've come to that conclusion. I wanna deal with that. And I think it's important that we do so and continue this thought process as we look at what John would have been thinking when he looked around and saw the events of his world and the vision that he has in Revelation 13, because we've said, we said that all of Revelation talks about the types of events that will occur from the time Jesus establishes his kingdom until the parousia or the second coming of Christ. So in Revelation 13, we were introduced to this beast and we said that that beast that emerges out of the sea represents the type of governments that will occupy the universe, planet Earth, from the time Jesus did establish his kingdom on the day of Pentecost until the time he returns. And all of the metaphors or imagery as portrayed by that beast 
as outlined in the word of God in Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10, particularly, we discovered that these beasts or this beast represents anti-God, anti-Christ governments who will set themselves up as ultimate authorities uh, without any respect or adoration or even belief in a sovereign God. And as a result, they will make policies that oppress and abuse its citizens and ultimately the people of God. And this will be true during the entire church age. But as we continue to read Revelation 13, we're introduced to another beast and we're really not told that much about it, except we read these words beginning in verse 11 of chapter 13. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth It had two horns like a lamb. Now, when we see the word lamb, it's usually associated with Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. But then we're told that it spoke like a dragon. So it looks Christian or religious, but in all reality, it comes from Satan himself. Verse 12 clarifies, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So now we know that there is collusion. Uh, There's a relationship between anti-God, anti-Christ governments and anti-God and anti-Christ religions. We're told in verse 13, it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Verse 14, because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast It deceived the inhabitants of the earth and ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Verse 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. Now, the 40,000 foot view is very clear that there is a relationship between government and religion of some kind. In fact, the religion Uh, is the instrument of the government. It, in fact, draws allegiance, compels allegiance through fear, intimidation, not toward the religion itself, but toward the government, the governing authorities. And how that works is very difficult. And the only way we can understand that is to ask ourselves the question that I said we should ask from the very beginning, what would John have been thinking as he witnessed this beast that comes out of the earth that looks like a lamb but speaks in the voice and with the authority of the dragon. And I've warned us, stop trying to apply this passage immediately to America and the West. Think about what John would have seen and what he would have thought. As we've said in the past, Revelation is written for us but not to us. So where did the minds of the people who first read this letter from John Where did their minds go? What would they have seen or understood as the use of signs and symbols are deployed to communicate something that should be, uh, through interpretation, somewhat clear to the people of John's day? In fact, folks, Revelation 13 was already true in John's day. The Antichrist and anti-God government of Rome 
had partnered together with pagan worship. Religion and government were in bed together. In fact, as we read history, we discover that the priest in the days of John influenced and upheld the secular power of the state, Rome. So whatever Rome declared or the authorities declared, the priest of the temple upheld and enforced. These priests in these pagan temples did their best to compel through fear and intimidation, all citizens and foreigners to worship Caesar and the emperors. It was an unholy allegiance, which explains verse 12. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So the pagan priests, conspiring with the authorities of Rome, historically speaking, we know, resorted to tricks and pseudo-miracles to deceive the people. So the pagan priest under the authority of Rome ordered the various districts to make statues in honor of the emperor. And then the pagan priest, in order to entrench the state religion or emperor worship more firmly into the minds of the people, through the art of ventriloquism, would make the statues, the emperor's statues, appear to actually speak. Someone again, historically, would hide in the statues and they would speak in a low authoritative voice to give the illusion of a miraculous coming to life. So these religious ceremonies that happened throughout the Roman Empire would appear, it was actually believed that the life of the emperor would be breathed into the idol. It was a sort of transubstantiation, which explains verse 15, The second beast was given power to breathe life or to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So in John's day, this was the manner in which they isolated and identified Christ followers. It's important to keep in mind that the majority of the population were polytheistic and they would have no problem worshiping the emperors or the statues represented by the emperors. The Christians, however, were different. They were monotheists, one God without any other gods or idols. So in order to identify or isolate the Christ followers from the rest of the polytheists, you were forced to carry papers proving that you'd been to the temple and that you would worship the gods of Rome. Now, because we've said that these type events represent the types of events that will occur from the time Jesus establishes his kingdom till the time he returns, We should expect this type of event, not only in the day of John, but right through church history, even into our day. It is true in the West, anti-God governments still detest Christianity because of what they consider to be an archaic type of morality that stifles future progress. When in fact, the moral, traditionally speaking, the moral boundaries presented by the gospel, by Christianity, have proven to protect and to produce vitality within culture and society. So any culture in the West that tries to do away with Judeo-Christian principles and values seems bent on self-destruction. Now, let's take a pause just for a moment. Why has our country been so blessed? And it has. And the scripture would tell you it's cause and effect. It's reaping and sowing. Typically speaking, Judeo-Christian values tend to prosper society because they promote a sense of equality and a sanctity of life and the value of every human life. 
And in times in the past, when a country that has been founded on Judeo-Christian values stray from these values in cases like slavery, you still need to be reminded that it was indeed those who demanded that America or the West conform once again to Judeo-Christian values who are responsible for putting the end to such atrocities like slavery. Do you understand that? Humanity strays, but what is it that brings them back to the center? Typically in the West and in, affluence, uh, in countries of affluence, those who have been blessed by Judeo-Christian principles, it has been the Judeo-Christian community that acknowledge the sin of the people and call them back to a more biblically-centered life, culture, society. The vision in Revelation 13, however, goes one step further. In verse 16, it, this is the beast of the earth, who's working in cahoots with the beast of the sea, anti-God governments, combining with anti-godly, anti-Christ religions, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, it forced them to receive a mark on their right hands. Actually, the the word uh, for hands is wrists or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. Now, just quickly, we have to deal with this before we go on. Get out of your Western mindset for a moment and all the sensationalism propagated in our day concerning the book of Revelation and ask the question once again, what would John have seen? What would John have thought about this? We'll say, how do you know what John thought? While some of Revelation is difficult, some of it's not that difficult. John's mind would have immediately gone back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, the Old Testament story where we read these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Again, the Hebrew word is wrists and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So if you know anything about Jewish history, the Hebrews wore what were referred to as phylacteries. Phylacteries were worn around the wrist and the forehead. And they were verses of scripture They were the law of God. And you put them on your forehead and on your wrist to symbolize that you lived your life thinking about the ways of God and doing the things of God. They symbolize what you do and what you think. The writer of the Psalm says in Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So the point, the symbolism here, the metaphor, the thing John would have been thinking about is there are two types of people in the world. One one type of person, the word governs their thoughts and their actions. They think differently than the world. They act differently than the world. Their thoughts are on the law of God. They do the work of God. 
and they refuse to bow down to any government or legislation or cultural fad or cultural norm that opposes Jesus in dogma or in practice. I agree with Andy Stanley when it comes to any tension concerning what is right or what is wrong as determined by culture. He says, I tend to go with the guy who rose from the dead. We tend to follow Jesus. He rose from the dead. And that means that we can trust that God is with us and has given us a roadmap by which to live life that will produce growth and vitality. However, John is trying to tell us that if we decide to live Jesus' life, to follow Jesus, to ask in every situation, no matter what culture says, what would Jesus do? We should expect that such a position will often bring oppressive ramifications. So that John says about Christ followers that they will find it difficult, verse 17, to buy or sell unless they had the mark or unless they take the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So we're told, whatever this number is, we'll get to in a second, that authentic Christ followers will often suffer economic oppression if they follow Jesus, directly or indirectly, directly through discrimination and indirectly when you refuse to do business the world's way. There's always going to be a cost, and it will be a financial one often to following Jesus. Now, again, this is not that difficult to see because this has happened throughout Christianity, It's happened throughout Christian history from the time Jesus established his kingdom and it will happen, continue to happen until the time he returns and sets up the kingdom that will last forever. So in John's day, again, much of Revelation is history so we can interpret much of what we see, not all, but much of what we see based on what was happening in John's day. And in John's day, if you did not have proof of worship in the pagan temples, You are not allowed to buy or sell in the markets because the marketplace is where your papers were often inspected. You know, no shoes, no service. No shirt, no service. No mask, no service. In John's day, no papers, no service. And that's why Christians had an extremely difficult time surviving, economically speaking, in the major cities of Rome. So coming together in community and doing life together And helping one another was as much as a practical issue as it was a theological one. Now, this has happened throughout the entire church age. And if what we're saying about Revelation uh, Revelation is accurate, we should expect this to occur, these types of events to occur from the time Jesus died on the cross, was buried, resurrected, the day of Pentecost, when he poured out his spirit, as has been described as the days of the Lord, the last days he will pour out his spirit. We should see these types of things to occur all the way to the end until Jesus returns. Now, if that's true, we should see some evidence of this happening today. And we do. Think of what happens today in Hindu, Muslim, and Buddhist countries around the world. Christians can't get jobs. Their homes are often burned. Villages are destroyed. Christians are enslaved. Men and women are prevented from engaging in daily commerce if they wear the name of Jesus. They are Christ followers and all that's happening now. One of the reasons I like to travel around the world to places like India and Africa is so that I get a glimpse of revelation. You and I are sheltered from what's going on. I met two uh, pastors from Pakistan who had uh, began to live in India because extreme uh, uh, Muslims came into their village 
destroyed their home, killed his wife and children, and the only ones left were the father and the son. They escaped over the northern border into India, and India told them that they were allowed to live there, but they could not work unless they converted to Hinduism. So now you think about this for a moment. Here are these father and son. Their homes have been burned, children killed, wife and daughters raped and killed. And now they're allowed to live, but unless they're willing to convert to Hinduism, they're not allowed to work. So they stand out on the street. Talk about endurance, patient endurance. Talk about faithfulness. They stand out on the street corners, preaching the gospel to anyone who will listen. And they live hand to mouth. Verse 18 tells us this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beasts, for it is the number of man, that number is 666. Okay, let's deal with this finally. Let's, let's get to the core of this. In the Bible, all through the Bible, and in the book of Revelation especially, numbers represent something. So all through the Bible, the number two represents the work of God. So you've got in Luke chapter 10, we're told that Jesus sends out the 72, but he sends them out two by two. So the number two represents the work of God among the people of God. Noah's Ark, God gathered them up two by two. There are two witnesses in the book of Revelation that represent the two witnesses who will go out and proclaim the gospel. So when you see the number two or multiples of two, you're talking about, you're talking about the people, the work of God. You got the number seven. The number seven represents perfection. So you've got Naaman who dips in the Jordan six times, nothing happens. But on the seventh time, God's miraculous intervention. You've got Joshua marching around the city of Jericho six times, nothing happens. On the seventh time, God intervenes. There's the miraculous intervention of a sovereign and powerful God. Through the scriptures, the number seven means God's uh, perfection. That without God's intervention, you stop at the number six, which is man's number. And I'll tell you why just in a moment, but the number seven represents God's involvement, God's completion and perfection. The number 12 in the book of Revelation to the Bible represents the people of God, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and 12 tribes of Israel. The number 10 represents what we call perfection. It's very closely related, a distant cousin to the number seven, but there are some distinctions. So when Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive someone? Seven times, Jesus says, no. Seven times 70, a multiple of 10, which means forgive until the objective, until it's complete, until it's perfection, until there's restoration. And then the number six, where do we get this number? Why is the number six man's number? Because God created man on the sixth day, remember? So the number six, all through the Old and New Testament, came to symbolize man's number the number of man. Look at verse 18 again. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of man. Man's number is six. And in this case, we have 666. So what's the point? What's the point we're making here? Verse one of chapter 14, then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So we said that the number 12 represents the people of God and the number 10 represents completion or perfection. So 144,000 is simply a combination of these two numbers. It's trying to tell us that when heaven comes, all of God's people 
all of God's people will be found and all of God's people will have their father's name written on their foreheads. So you either have God's name symbolizing what you think about and what you do, or you have the beast's name. So there are two types of people, those who do the work of the evil one, They think of the work of the evil one because they're in the flow of the world or you think and do the work of God because you're in the flow of the kingdom of God that will last forever. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Christian ethics are being replaced at the top by an atheistic worldview, one that is aggressive toward religion. I know that. But to change it, yes, we use our voice to vote, but real change comes to the transformation of the heart. If we had been preaching the gospel with the same intent and passion that we've been trying to change the political system, there'd be so many believers in Jesus in this nation. We wouldn't be where we are now. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me wanna dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will bring this offering You are my wonder, you bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.